welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, our podcast dedicated to all things related to data privacy and data security with all sorts of technology in between. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, still recording from my home office in southwest London. In this episode, we're going to talk about some challenging views to privacy and data protection regulations. Controversially, we're going to discuss why data privacy, including regulations like GDPR, can be viewed as counterproductive and why we may be better off without the current notion of data privacy. So in our challenging journey today, I'm delighted to introduce our contra privacy provocateur, Ben Malazo. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. That's possibly the nicest introduction I think I've ever had. And with the British accent, it, it actually makes me sound sophisticated and important. So thank you very much. Yeah, so you're our agent provocateur today. I love the way you say that. <laughs> so Ben is currently the author of his new book called Exposed, How Revealing Your Data and Eliminating Privacy Increases Trust and Liberates Humanity. Ben has over 30 years in information security and education and is currently a professional certification training lead for SGS Cybersecurity Services. They are in a multinational corporation involved in a wide range of product and process certification and validation. Prior to that, some of Ben's roles have also included being a professor of English, a computer teacher for troubled teens, as well as extensive experience working with clients such as FedEx, the US Special Forces Command, the UN and HSBC. So I think we're in very good hands today to talk about such a, an interesting topic. So would you like to just share with us, first of all, please, Ben, the reasons behind the book and, and some of the key things that you're exploring in your book that's currently available? Absolutely. Thank you. Very proud to be on here and, and glad to share that. First, I have to apologize for the length of that title. The title of the book is far too long, but I really wanted to convey the idea of what I was going for. I did not want one of those scary privacy books that seem to clutter all the shelves right now, where everyone's trying to intimidate everyone else about any time you go online, your kids are going to burst into flame. It's tragic the way we've been approaching this, I think. Instead of taking this tool, which is enhanced communication and human growth in every possible objective aspect, I wanted to demonstrate that our current view of limiting the kinds of conversations we can have and the way that we can communicate is stifling some of that growth and slowing down some of the potential that we might have. And instead of using confidentiality as our only tool to protect our best interests, we may want to look at flipping the script, going ahead and opening up conversation and communication and taking some of that risk, but also obviating other risks and maybe finding new ways of growth. That sounds all very sensible. And when you take that rationale and apply it to the data protection regulations that, are, you know, that orig- have been around for 20 years, but obviously the GDPR, there was a big global push towards increasing data regulation standards. What do you see that's coming in through the regulations that's starting to stifle the sorts of conversations and the communications that you're referring to here? 
And I don't even think it's starting to stifle. I think it's been stifling. As you said, we've had decades already of some pretty questionable regulations. The data directive as a precursor to the GDPR and, and California on the heels of GDPR being the American version of GDPR light. California would love to join the EU if you would have them. <laughs> they have great beaches. I'll give them that. I lived there for several years. I visited there for several years. How's that? The idea that I'm going to have to constrain the types of information that I'm sharing and give oversight to some government regulator is kind of antithetical to the entire American idea of free expression. It is, I don't want to call it merely a European view or a cosmopolitan view. The idea is spreading, of course, globally. But what I don't want is if I have information about a politician who's corrupt or someone who's acting in hypocritical fashion or some investment that has gone sour. I don't want to be limited in going out to the world and shouting that as far and wide as possible. The entire point of the U.S. Constitution's idea of a First Amendment freedom of the press and freedom of expression is that I am a journalist. You are a journalist. Every human being has a voice. We don't have a special card issued to us that allows us to say what we want to say. Instead, we can say what we want to say damn the repercussions. Understanding that sometimes what we say could be damaging or hurtful, and we'll take responsibility for that, but that having all of those voices saying whatever they say and reporting whatever they see is more beneficial to the common wheel as a whole because the population gets all those voices and perspectives and reports instead of a filtered, funneled, sanitized version of what the truth might be. So I don't like regulation, especially from a governmental body, because you're handing the stick to the very entity that should be the most scrutinized by the individuals that granted it that power. That's an interesting use case, I guess. So having information about an individual that could point to their links to corruption or crime or whatever it is, and then sharing that information. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not, there's lots of laws I'm not expert on, but over here, I guess my understanding is if I made accusations about someone that they were breaking laws, they could potentially sue me for slander if I had that information incorrectly. Now, I'm not sure the privacy regulations would be the route that that individual would go down to come back at me and go, Hoy, that's what you're saying is completely wrong here. No, and I totally understand. There's libel and there's slander. We have similar laws here, and they're, they're mostly torts, but they did come from English common law. And that may, the privacy laws may not be the end state of what those things started in terms of personal uh, responsibility for expression. But what I see the privacy laws doing are setting up a construct where I'm not allowed to say certain things, and I have to check myself before I even go and say those things. Basic, simple things, someone's name, someone's address. Okay, someone's birth date might be pushing it a bit. But we used to have giant books on every street corner next to every payphone that had everyone's name and phone number and address in it. And when did we become a nation or a world of cowards where we're so afraid of someone having our phone number and our address that has to be secret and double locked behind encrypted keys and the government's going to punish anyone who reveals that? That is pathetic and ridiculous. And I'll give a great example from recent history. We had a very notorious vice president a few years back, Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney. 
And Dick Cheney got very upset because there was a newspaper that was not of his political stripe that posted photos of his home and the address where that home was located. And Cheney made all these accusations saying this newspaper was putting him at risk and that this was a national security matter because no one should know where the vice president lives, which is completely insane because we're paying for that house. We're paying for the security of that house. And he's merely a citizen who represents us. We do not have a monarchy over here. So knowing the location of the person that we've granted authority and responsibility to is a very much in American interest. It is in the individual interest of every person. Trying to constrain someone or even shame someone for publishing something like that is very anti-freedom, anti-human. Okay, so in Mr. Cheney's example, the house that he was living in was paid for by the taxpayer. Whether it was his private home or whether it was the government home that he was staying in, either way, at some point, he's taking the king's shilling and we're the king over here. The individuals are. He got taxpayer funding, so he better open up his pocketbook and his front door. Interesting. All right. So one, to take your point on that one, and obviously security is being paid for. So in the era of terrorism, if he's being targeted, say, by some rogue state, you know, taken out Mr. Cheney during his time in office could be quite a coup for them. So I guess that's why the taxpayer pays I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, by and large, our vice president, their entire purpose is to show up at people's funerals when the president's too busy to go or the person wasn't important enough and maybe go to state dinners if it's a low foreign dignitary of a, of a country that's not as important as they send the president to. The idea that terrorists are even going to target a vice president? I don't think most terrorists could name an American vice president. I'm just trying to understand whether... There is some justification for him wanting his address to be kept quiet. He's above the rest of us. And you look at the British tradition, you have the Official Secrets Act, which even predates the GDPR and the data directives, right? Yeah. Where the government could tell the press what to publish or what not to publish based on the Queen's decision, right? We have the exact opposite of that. Our government has to beg a newspaper not to print something if the government feels that this might harm the national interest. And the newspaper may or may not choose to do so. That is because the power resides with the people, not with the government. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And what about the owners of the newspapers? They should be personally responsible for whichever harm befalls the revelations. But again, they're just individuals. Our elected officials are just individuals. Nobody has been imbued with some hereditary or divine right to rule over all the other individuals. We can just go elect some more. We could buy other newspapers and, and so forth. We've had some great examples in American history where newspapers have revealed things to the American people that were very important. The Pentagon Papers, classic example. Edward Snowden's revelations. And even though that's a controversial topic, these things were made known to the people simply because someone was brave enough to expose that to the world, even though the government really tried to make it not happen. And that brings in an interesting topic about being able to discuss individuals and journalists, actually, being able to discuss freely, particularly online in this day and age. Obviously, large newspapers who have been around for a long time, it costs money to run a newspaper, you need to employ journalists, etc, etc. 
over here there's a whole load of press standards but obviously there's a huge in the last 20 years there's been a whole generation of citizen led journalism people can go and research things and, and do blogs etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know to your point which was I should be able to go out there and broadly say what I want and accept the consequences if there are, are adverse consequences. Do you think that is being allowed to happen in today's social media type environment? Are people allowed to say things about anything that they want to say, whether it's race, ethnicity, gender, etc.? Are they allowed to debate about that? That is a great question. And I'm going to come at it from two angles, both yes and no. I was a former journalist, or I am a former journalist. I worked for a newspaper, and I understand how those things work. Those were terrible tools for disseminating information. You had a limited number of perspectives. You had a limited number of eyeballs and voices that simply could not be everywhere and convey everything. And I think today's world is so much better because every 14-year-old with a cell phone can do a better job than the best trained journalist could 30 years ago with you know a typewriter and a telephone. Yeah. We know about Derek Chauvin and George Floyd because there were a group of people standing around with their phones pointed at them and we captured that. And that tradition goes back as far as Rodney King where some citizen with a video camera watched the LAPD beat a man on the ground. If that person had not been there, if we don't have access to police body cams, we would not have the knowledge that we do as citizens in order to respond to societal ills. Conversely, like you said, we do have certain giant portals that exceed and amplify voices that otherwise might not hit the mainstream. And those things seem to be being managed at the moment to only allow certain voices to be amplified and uh, strictly reducing others. And it's almost frightening the amount of power and control they have over the general dialogue. And it's very similar to the newspapers of 100 years ago, where you would have the voice of Hearst or Pulitzer, and that was it. And no matter how many writers were writing, those two's voices were the things that were going to come across. And you're kind of seeing it now with the voices of Zuckerberg and Dorsey come across when they select those tweets that are going to be amplified and magnified, and if they choose to reduce or stifle voices. But those individuals are responsible for the organization and the algorithms that select and amplify posts and tweets and et cetera, et cetera. And actually, if you understand how the algorithms work, you can then manipulate them accordingly. The thing about these massive platforms, I think the multiple dimension of issues, it's not just the one, because you then got the idea where you have all these bots. And I think what you're asking is, if they just automate the process, which is whenever they're accused of favoritism, they always say, it's the algorithm that did it, not me, right? They, they step back. They're doing their Pontius Pilate washing of hands by saying, you know, the computer did it, right? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to go, I'm flashing on Little Britain. Computer says no. However, they've proven more than often enough that they're willing to intercede as a human agent when their algorithm isn't stifling something that they think should be stifled. That's totally true. The algorithm was okay with that. 
They weren't. So if management gets involved, that's editorial. And they're in my view, they're taking personal responsibility for stifling conversation. Whether they truly believe that's for the betterment of human health and safety, okay, I mean, that's their good intentions, but I'm not operating from an aspect of good intentions. I'm operating for the most availability of information lest we go into an echo chamber. You know, the other unfortunate uh, thing that happens with the algorithm is that, as you know, it, it's replaying to you themes and memes around things you've liked or commented on. So this idea of you of individuals starting to exist in echo chambers is happening as a result of how the algorithm works. If you've got certain political views, there's a good chance you will be constantly fed stories with those political views. And that means you don't get to hear other political views. And I think that's dangerous. I'm not as afraid of that as a centralized authority deciding what I should or should not listen to. If what you have is an ad server, which is basically what those algorithms are, optimizing my experience based on what I previously liked. Show me puppies and kittens because that's what I want to see. Don't show me motorboats because I don't care about that at all. You know, basketball, football, I see that stuff. I just my eyes glaze over. Okay. That's not to my taste. That's not an echo chamber. That's a personal shopping preference. And that's what I want to see. Now, I think there's been studies that have come out fairly recently by some fairly reputable organizations that have shown that individual human beings, by and large, when they select their friend group, that is the voices they like and don't like online, even in these large social media platforms, they do not go for a homogenous voice. They choose a nice spread of friends, people who might be related to them or they might have gone to school with or some other where they get contrary voices. So even though the voices from on high, the authoritarian voices that may come from some particular disciplined source as opposed to an individual source, those might have a certain single viewpoint. Individual users aren't listening to just those. They're gathering data from a whole bunch of different sources, and they're just as likely to click on links for ideas supporting something they don't believe in because they're interested in learning more as they are clicking on links of something that they are already acceding to. I think there's a level of profiling going on on those platforms that most people would not believe. I think if people aren't aware of it by now, they haven't been paying attention for 20 years. And I think we're selling the customers short. You know, after the 2016 election, when the whole world went crazy with conspiracy theories about Russians hiding in our soup cabinets, everyone was concerned. Facebook is actually harvesting my data. Well, no kidding. You're posting your data to Facebook. The same people that I saw complaining about their personal privacy two posts prior in the feed were showing pictures of their infants having dinner. You know, I think there's a couple of groups who probably aren't quite as savvy. Don't say kids. Kids are more savvy than we are. I don't think they do when they start out in social media. I think perhaps they then learn. I'm talking from my experience, I guess, with my daughter. So having watched how and, and been quite keen to where she's, she's, she doesn't post much because she's heard it from me. <laughs> I'll grant you this. I taught high school for two years. And I watched some of my students make drug deals on Facebook. And I had to explain to them, you know, not only, you know, drugs are bad. Yeah, sure. 
I also had to explain to them, look, when you post it on Facebook, what you're doing is handing all of the evidence to the prosecutor. You are basically drawing a straight line to you that you cannot hide behind. Your presumption of innocence is being thrown away. Not that I'm teaching them how to be criminals, but I'm pointing this out. They said almost uniformly things that impressed me as a security practitioner. One, they said, first of all, none of this information that I used to register this account is true. All right, so the only thing they can actually trace back is that the IP address was the one at the school, and good luck finding out which individual kid was on which individual machine. The other thing that they said was that, why would anyone be looking for me? If you've got 2 billion users on Facebook and this kid is selling a dime bag of weed, it's not a matter of the police are going through and finding all of those deals. There's simply not enough police to make that happen. And I explained to the kids, and you're right, maybe this is where they learn the sophistication eventually. I said, you're right. There's no dragnet that'll find you simply because you did that. The difference is once they find you on one thing, now they have a treasure trove of data they can throw the book at you with because they immediately have access to all your other crimes. And that's where they did kind of start to understand what total collections meant. However, Americans still haven't reconciled the fact that all of their email traffic, all of their ISP content is being filtered by the NSA. That, that has not sunk in yet. But this was behind the whole invalidation of the privacy shield. Yes. In fact, I did a podcast with my colleague, Mark Sherwood Edwards, and we were talking about the end of the, the privacy shield and how fixable is the problem. And he said, you know, he quoted a, a saying from a national security advisor saying, well, I don't know why people are worried about data and servers. We've got access to undersea cables, basically. <laughs> yeah, the illusion, and, and that's kind of why in the book, I don't even talk about it as privacy. I talk about it as partial privacy or our illusion of privacy. We don't really have privacy. We have a facade. We have a fig leaf that we hold up and say, oh, no, don't look at this. You're not allowed to look at That's not privacy. And he's absolutely right. The data is there to be harvested if anyone wants to harvest it. If the individuals with the power and the access want to harvest it. And that's the issue, is what we've created is a partial privacy where some people have access to huge chunks and everybody else has access to nothing. And that is not egalitarian, and that is not liberty for an individual. If we believe that the people in the high towers are protecting us, I think we've misplaced our trust. And I think one of the other talking points you wanted to mention was how every protection we've ever created becomes rife for abuse. Yes. And I think that's the kind of an issue that we see with a lot of these privacy laws, a lot of them were created with the best of intentions, like many of our laws, but they're created by our lawmakers who by and large, and I, and I don't know much about your MPs over there, and I don't know about your various houses and your government, but our lawmakers over here are the people least capable of understanding technology. They're lawyers by and large, and those are the last people that you'd want doing tech support for you. And they think that they can future-proof the internet and technology in such a way as to protect individual citizens. And in fact, the exact opposite has been 
shown to be true over a number of years. And we've had case after case after case where the best intention law that was written 20 years ago when we still had dial up and AOL and whatever. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> they're trying to be applied to what we have today. And what you end up with is some terrible, terrible outcomes, quite the opposite of what the original lawmaker's intent was. And I think when we've created these privacy laws, we're running into the same thing. Now, every European, well, most of the European individuals I've spoken to in the past two years in classes and so forth, my students, but particularly the British ones have all said the same thing. And you correct me if I'm wrong here, you, you may be the outlier. They've all said the right to be forgotten is a cute idea, impossible to apply. Because the right to be forgotten in the current GDPR says not only does that entity have to wipe all of my PII, but they have to notify me that they've done so. But how can they notify me if they've wiped all my PII? The, the whole thing is paradoxical on its face. And, and I'd, I'm not going to ever name any of the clients who've said these things, but I've had several clients from several prominent entities say, you know what we've done? We've all agreed in the closed session of senior management, we're going to comply as best we can. We're going to delete what we can, but you can only go so far. It's totally correct. Yeah, I think in the ICO, our regulator has tried to take a pragmatic approach, you know, because you can't bankrupt your business trying to comply to the absolute letter. Otherwise, you don't have businesses and et cetera, et cetera. And I think you're right. Organizations will do their best. And it's not always clear cut and it's not always simple. And I guess a bit like most things in life, there are limits. There's always a balance between what you do and how what the impact of what you do is. And, you know, right to be forgotten, well, goes back to least said, soonest mended. If you're not putting lots of stuff out there, you're not putting yourself in a position where actually you're going to have to get ask someone to delete it and take it back. So, <laughs> But you're thinking from a standpoint of a decent uh, law abiding individual. You're not even thinking about it from the perspective of an American teenager. If we had a right to be forgotten here. Within one week, that thing would have been weaponized by everyone under the age of 17, where all they were doing is antagonistically notifying every company that exists, wipe all my data, in a right to be forgotten. I mean, it does happen here. Yeah, but the clients I've worked with haven't had two. One of the particulars had quite a lot, but they, they don't run a social media platform. Okay. And I think it happens. I think it's it's definitely used and triggered. But actually, why wouldn't they? Because you, you then you hear the counter stories of individuals being hounded because 12 years ago they said something stupid or... Or that was acceptable at the time and is no longer acceptable. People are not allowed to make mistakes. Exactly. And again, those laws are... And on the flip side, I think you have some governments that are weaponizing those laws against those companies as a means of revenue generation. How much has France enforced GDPR versus Belgium or, or any of the other participants in the EU simply because they see a, a huge cash grab available there? And they're going after these targets because they know they can and because GDPR and privacy are such a sacred cow that no company is going to say, no, we disagree with you and we think that people shouldn't be private. That would be political suicide for those companies, right? All these things are tied in together, aren't they? The privacy, the big platforms, how people with power can potentially decide how information is gathered and shared and, and presented. 
And that's before we even get the bots from foreign agents who are on those platforms also influencing through volume certain messages, amplifying them. The algorithm picks them up and pushes them off down the line. I mean, it's if if any foreign agent successfully do that, more power to that foreign agent. I mean, that'd be great. Let's let's invite those foreign agents to teach our kids math because we suck at it personally. What I'm saying is if they have the tools to do that successfully, they should be the ones running our society because obviously their tools are better. If we're failing with our tools strictly in a communicate a voluntary communications channel, then the triumph of ideas has gone to someone else. And in that case, that someone else should be a part. And we'll go back to the 2016 election for, for one second, where a lot of my fellow Americans were decrying foreign intervention, foreign agents operating on our social media and conveying news to influence our elections. And I brought up the question, and I, I mean no offense, and I really thank you for having me on the show. And I, I've been an Anglophile since I was a kid, and I love Monty Python and Sherlock Holmes and Benedict Cumberbatch is one of your natural treasures. But I asked, isn't the BBC funded by the UK government? Wouldn't that make the BBC a foreign agent? And if they make reports about our elections, wouldn't that be foreign intrusion on American elections? And that, therefore, wouldn't any platform carrying a BBC feed be violating some election law if we made one that said foreign agents cannot comment on American law. And that would be stupid. BBC reporting is generally pretty good, and it's another voice that some people want to hear, and we should be allowed to hear all the voices. It's well, The taxpayer pays for it, but the government has control over that. How, how, I guess, how much we pay, who pays, what happens if you don't pay, and, you know, they are talking about reducing because it's mandatory. People go to jail if they don't pay their license fee. Isn't that weird? It's not the same for Netflix or Amazon Prime or Sky or anything. And I don't know where that's going to go. So there's a lot of tension between our national broadcaster and um, the government. That's very odd. Now, we, we had similar things over here with licensing of television broadcasting, but that's all being killed by the cut the cable movement. And streaming services are an amazing other voice for freedom and deviating from homogeny. Um, and that's great. Yeah, I agree. You know, especially during lockdown, we're watching shows we would never get to see, you know, foreign language shows. Brilliant. You know, even though the subtitles don't care. It's brilliant <laughs> stuff, but it's out there on different platforms. Immediately, instantly and in high quality and high quality, right? I mean, I don't know how, I think you're a little younger than I am, but I remember having to wait for the rerun when you miss the episode in the sequence, and that might be months later or it might never happen. And a VCR, do you remember? I mean, those were ugly, clunky devices. Now, on-demand viewing of everything you want. Yeah. So we did mention a couple of things around, you know, compliance. We were kind of on that track, but we went off track a little bit. You know, the cost of compliance, we touched on that, didn't we? You know, businesses at senior level saying, you know, we'll try to do our best, but actually we've got business to run and, and there, you know, there's no unlimited budget for this. So, so, you know, compliance, what I saw in financial services is that a high bar for compliance and regulation, it completely makes it very difficult for new entrants into the market. And here's the amazing thing is that we've been stuck 
with confidentiality as the only tool for protection in particularly financial services for a very long time. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. In security, we talk about three foundational concepts of security, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. All three of them need to be there for you to have access to your resources when you need them. Confidentiality uh, is secrecy. Only authorized people will have access. Integrity is only authorized transactions are conveyed. And availability is authorized access is granted when it's authorized. Well, we have integrity and availability. You don't really need confidentiality to protect money if we look at this from a macro view. If every bill every uh, dollar or pound, or I don't know what kind of money you're currently using now. Sterling, are they coins? I don't. So if every bill has the name of the person who owns it embedded in it until they hand it over to the next person and that person's name is embedded in the bill, you wouldn't need confidentiality of protecting the bills in a safe with a guard and a uh, attack dog behind a fence and a wall. That's kind of what blockchain is is that ledger of the owners publicly known to all participants. Now, the one thing that's missing is the identifier of who the individual is. Instead, you have the, the cryptographic identifier. But if you know who is the legitimate owner of that bill, you could leave the bill on a table and no one would take it because anyone unauthorized who takes it now is carrying evidence of their own crime. We've gone at it from such an 18th century viewpoint for so long that the bill itself is the value, and therefore you have to protect the bill, that building a safe and a wall and a bank is a very expensive proposition for protecting paper. That makes no sense. Well, I guess I don't know if there were any solutions for being able to securely put the, someone's name on a bill in in old days, so therefore the bills were anonymous. and There were self-signed. They used a lot of letters of credit. If you read the communications from the people of the time, they would say, pay this person this amount, and they'd sign it, and they'd take it to their local distributor or merchant or whatever, and that merchant would give them credit based on that letter, which is crazy, but it seemed to have worked because we had a mercantile system and capitalism you know, roared up out of nowhere a couple hundred years ago. It was pretty amazing, and I'm sure there was a lot of fraud, but just as often people were able to engage in international mm -hmm. trade too. Yeah, they were. So yeah, so the cost of compliance and in financial services, I know that certainly in a number of countries trying to encourage startups into financial services, give them a platform through regulatory sandboxes or even sandboxes with the ICO to create products that tick the regulatory and compliance boxes and allow them to you know, challenge the big players. But certainly everything that I see in the customers I work with, compliance costs are, are significant. You know, it's a big deal to those customers to, you know, to have us come in and do projects and look and make sure they're doing what they can to be compliant. So Exactly. I mean, for a startup to have to apportion a significant percentage of their initial capital to complying with a regulation as opposed to make a working functioning product or service, that's, that's inimical to innovation and creativity and to young people entering the marketplace. But they have to because it builds something that doesn't have the necessary privacy and security in the product. The, often the cost, two things happen. One, the cost to fix further down the line is more than if they designed it in and built it at the beginning. And secondly, if they're looking for VC funding, uh, what I'm seeing is um, more and more they're asking those questions 
are you ticking certain compliance boxes? Because that gives them the freedom to operate. And the VCs would not be doing their due diligence if they didn't ask those questions. Absolutely. However, let's go the other route, though. Let's push the liability back on the individual users. What if the customers decide to choose a service or a product that is inherently dangerous? What if they all want to ride motorcycles? Should they not be allowed to ride motorcycles? And, and this is where we actually bump up against it. And for some reason, we don't have a similar thing in the world of IT and in the world of privacy. If I want to buy an inferior product that still performs the function but may expose my data, shouldn't I be allowed to do it? If you know that that's what's going to happen. Uh, okay. Be transparent about what they do and they don't do, I think. But then you don't need a regulatory framework. What you could have is an industry framework of certification, which is kind of the world that I'm in and kind of what my company does is they're a third party independent non-government certifier that'll come in and say, yes, the load of cargo weighed this much at the exfiltration point and it weighed the same amount at its destination. And that's worked for a couple hundred years. And we've done that with insurance products. You've done that with, you know, there's a number of industry mechanisms. The problem is when you hand the regulatory gun over to the government, you've got an, a sovereign entity that nobody can argue with unless that entity decides that it's going to allow you to argue. And that's a very dangerous mechanism. And it leads to the abuses that we talked about and also to poor enforcement. Honestly, government is the worst arbiter of these things because they have no financial stake in the matter. No one's going to lose their job in the government if they do it wrong. The cost of compliance doesn't work when the compliance is a, a governmental mandate as opposed to an industry certification. Well, maybe we'll get there at some point in the future. <laughs> it's hard to do once we made the laws. It's hard to claw the laws back. That's why I'm so afraid of these innovative laws. Uh, you, you had an episode I listened to a, a few weeks ago about the AI, and those are just guidelines. Yeah, in the ICO, the ICO is guidelines, but in the EU, the artificial laws are going through the pipeline of having, you know, having them approved. It will take a couple of years. So theirs will become law, whereas in the UK, it's guidelines at the moment. Right, and I think guidelines are okay, but the laws scare the heck out of me. And, and I say this as because I was listening to the episode while I was riding my motorcycle. And all I was thinking was the only people that follow laws are non-criminals. So when we talk about AI, the true AI, that is the, the intelligent, the HAL 9000, right? The voice from Moon, all these cinematic references of AIs the creepy kid from the Steven Spielberg movie, they're not going to come from the large players. Large players are going to keep doing what they've been doing, which is sort of accelerating automation. It's going to be some kid in some basement somewhere. And whether that kid in that basement is in uh, Stratford or is in Washington, D.C., or is in Malaysia, that kid is not going to be following the AI laws in the jurisdiction they're in because they're not interested and they don't care. And for us to have this false sense of security that we're protecting ourselves from inimical AI by codifying that for adults and corporations is ridiculous. Instead, what we probably should do is be much more forward thinking and encourage 
open and free sharing of these ideas. So the kid who's making it in the basement, while he's crowdsourcing it among all the other kids that he's met online from all over the world, we at least have some insight that it's coming and that we can see it and that'll be there and that we all have some feedback and that we don't piss that kid off <laughs> because we don't want him angry at us either. So I think we're painting ourselves into a corner with the laws. The laws just aren't the right vehicle. Well, it's a great topic and it's different from anything we've really covered on the show, which I, I love about it. But actually, we're coming to the end of our time slot, though. So I'm just going to have to sadly wrap it up, although I can imagine we could chat all day, to be honest. <laughs> I'd love to. So this kind of brings us to the end of this episode of GDPR Now. And if our listeners have any questions, you know, I'm sure you'd be happy, Ben, to take any questions. Very, very much so. I think I have 12 readers worldwide. So, you know, any more would be very welcome. We'll put a link to your new book on the show notes as well. So th thank you very much for a, a great thought-provoking topic that will send toes curling, I'm sure, in, <laughs> in some sections. <laughs> but, we've, we've, you know, we've got to take all views. I think that's really important. Thank you for having me on. I, I'm very sorry that I have such iconoclastic views that may not be utterly pragmatic, but uh, uh, I think the other voice often has to be heard, too, if for nothing else than to vindicate your own perspective. I agree. Hopefully it won't be the first and last time we have the, our provocateur, Ben, on the show. So thank you for taking the time today, Ben, and thank you everyone for listening. And take care and stay safe. That's it for me.